following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning. Good morning to all. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church and our adult Bible study here and Sunday school for the kids. They're making their way out, I see. See you guys later. We're grateful to be here this morning. Glad that you are here. Tune up our hearing for our brother's message this morning. Thank you, Brother James. Good morning. The last time we were here was March 14th. And we were looking in the book of Nahum. And we will return to that book this morning. It's been a while since we considered some of the first matter uh, with regard to the book. And so I'll just make mention of a few of those things. That this was a, a prophecy or a set of messages that were delivered a long time ago in the way that we think about time. And so the writing of the book was between 663 B.C. and 612 B.C. That just kind of gives you a ballpark of where, what the time frame is, out of which this message developed. We saw in the first chapter the person who, whom God selected uh, to deliver uh, the, these words that he had for the people, and that was Nahum. He, Nahum, he was called an Elkoshite. And we have said before that we really haven't found much information about the man himself beyond what is written here uh, in this short section. The form of the prophecy is we, we use the word burden, and we also use the word a vision. Uh, a carrying of a weight is kind of what the word burden is. So he's carrying a weight, a weighted message to a people who need to take time to listen, to hear what he has to say. The primary focus is upon Nineveh or the Assyrians. This refers to an ancient and magnificent kingdom that existed for a very long time. In fact, it was of such significance that it really stood out in the world and Probably people in that time couldn't envision a time when it would be decimated and would be no more. I think it tends to be that way. And this prophet is coming. And he has a message which says that it's not going to continue on. There are problems, there are difficulties, and that there's someone who's concerned about what's going on, other than the people who are living in that space and time. There's someone who's concerned about what's going on. And that, for the Assyrians, was a big problem because they would get to find out who it is who was concerned about it and what would be done about what they were doing the wickedness that they had engaged in. And so we see the prophecy against Nineveh. 
and how God is saying, well, he's going to deal with their, their issues. But also in the midst of it, we see encouragement for God's people, Judah. Now, Judah was in a situation which was for them a destitute situation. They had at one time been in a wonderful place because of what God had done to bring out and bring the nations, actually developing a nation in Egypt in captivity and delivering them through the wilderness experience and bringing them into the promised land and allowing them to establish a kingdom. So we had David, we had Solomon, and we had some of their great days and some of their great times, but it didn't last. It didn't last. And so after Solomon departed, the rulership was left in someone else's hands. And as it turned out, there were two someones because the split kingdom was split. And so then we had a northern kingdom and we had a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had just uh, such wickedness in it that God decided that the time had arrived for them to be put in their place, as it were, which means devastated and deported from the land. And this was done. Judah carried on for another century or more, over another century. But there were specific kinds of problems, sin, evil, that was rampant in the northern kingdom in Israel. And not only did Judah know about it, but that in their own experiences and in their own living, they imitated it. In other words, they did the same thing. I know I've said before, and I keep saying, not just outward, but inward too. Can we learn? Can we learn by looking and listening to what God is concerned about and how he responds to things? Can we learn from that? Judah had an opportunity because God had provided for them an illustration that couldn't be clearer with what happened with the northern kingdom. Now, there were some periods of time with Judah where they did better, but ultimately God said, well, you're going to be removed as well. And so this book here, Nahum, comes in between those after the northern kingdom had been uh, devastated and deported and all that happened with them, and before uh, Judah got his portion. And so they had opportunity. They also were able to learn, if they would, from history, some of the other things that had happened with them, which I'm not going to review just now. But I want to pick up and point out a few of the things that are here in the first chapter. 
Now, when we're looking at this, we have three chapters here in Nahum, and we characterize the overarching message in each of those chapters with a different focus. That in the first one, we talked about the certainty of God's judgment. And so we see certain phrases and expressions which makes it clear that what God has said will happen, the judgments that he said is coming, and indeed will come. We pointed to one place where the phrasing was in what we call a um, prophetic perfect, I think is the word we use. It's speaking as if the thing is already done, but it was not yet done for them. But the certainty of it was such that it could be spoken of that way. And then in the second chapter, uh, the focus there primarily on a description of God's judgment on Nineveh. And then in the last section, uh, chapter, a primary focus overall on the reasons for the judgment that was coming against Nineveh. And so when we see in the first chapter the burden in verse 1 against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite, against Nineveh. Now, who is against Nineveh? That is what, that question and the answer to it is really what makes all the difference. And that's really what makes this book significant. It's not that there haven't been against Nineveh, many. Many have come against Nineveh. In fact, they thought they were impregnable and that they could overcome whatever attacks were made against them. But it was not so. I'm going to pick up a few of the verses here. Now, in chapter 1, again, note in verse 2, and the latter part of that verse says, he reserves wrath for his enemies. Now, this is talking about God. And it says God reserves wrath for his enemies. If he's reserving wrath for his enemies, what do you think is going to happen? You think he's just reserving it for some future day where he'll just flush it? I don't think that's what the deal is. I think he's reserving it with a specific purpose, right? Now look at verse number three. The second part of that says, and will not at all acquit the wicked. So he's reserving wrath for his enemies, and he will not acquit the wicked. That is justice. That's what justice looks like. And that's what God said. The certainty of the judgment that was coming. And it was certain because of the character of God and who he is. And so when God says justice is going to be meted out, 
you can be sure justice is going to be meted out. Now, we wish we could have a better level in our own society towards reaching for that standard. But too often in our current living and environment, justice is not the primary issue. Too often, too often. But with God, justice will be meted out. There is no doubt about that. And so these horrible things that are depicted there in the first part of that chapter that are going to happen to Nineveh are very explicit, and they are horrible and horrifying things to think about. And so then we get to verse number 7, also in chapter 1, verse 7. It says, the Lord is good. Now, that's good. To have that brick right in, in the middle of all this horrifying, tragic things that are happening and going to happen with Nineveh, to have that direct, explicit statement, the Lord is good. Now, for us and those of us who are sitting here, all of you I'm looking at right now, that to you is, is, is not a question at all, right? But not everybody sees it that way. They need to listen to what the prophet says. And then it says that he is a stronghold in the day of trouble. So he's good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. But now think on the last part of that. And that's, I pause when I get to that. Because it says he knows those who trust in him. He knows those who trust in him. I like to think about that on a personal level. You know, we talk about a day of trouble, and there are a lot of different ways we can think about that and apply that idea that the Lord is good, he's a stronghold in a day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. The best place to be is to be in the place of trusting in him. Now, if we can be in that place, it doesn't mean if we're in that place that trouble isn't coming to us. It doesn't mean that. God never promised we wouldn't have trouble. But he did promise for those who are his that he would never leave nor forsake them. That he did promise. And if we trust in him, then we are confident that he's not going to leave nor trust, uh, forsake us either. And so that's the way God operates. So God is love. The Lord, God is good. In one of our sessions, we read through a number of verses which speaks about that very specific thing, that the Lord is good. And we are not going to go back there now to, to review those particular ones. There's another thing here. Now I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 2. We spoke from this section before 
And I'm going to start at verse 1 and read through verse 2. And then there's a point I want to make here. In verse 2, it says, He scatters, he who scatters has come up before your face. And now listen to what it says here. This we call a taunt. It's like poking the bear. It's getting up in somebody's face. Look at what it says here. These things. Man the fort. Watch the road. Strengthen your flanks. Fortify your power mightily. Now, that's a taunt to Nineveh. To say, oh, you're such a strong and powerful nation, and this is forces coming against you, so now just gird up your loins and let's get ready for battle. That sort of an expression. And then after that, then we get, I think we maybe will be a bit little, a little bit surprised to see the next verse here. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. And so this is talking about the horror that has come uh, to the people of God, God's people, or what happened to them. But the word that the Lord will restore. May I submit to you that, that, that the only possibility for them to be restored was from God himself. They could try as best they could to rally together all the nations around them and try to make allies with as many as possible to try to rise again. But it couldn't be done. Only by God restoring again. You see, there have been concentrated efforts by powerful nations and people to eliminate God's people, not to try to restore them to a former place of prominence, but to eliminate them. Because some people consider that the problem with the world is that those people are a part of it. And we see the same kinds of things going on today. So to restore, though, that means that there was a former time which is better than what it was here now. This is where I see what the prophet is saying here. God is going to do something that's going to be marvelous and wonderful. And there was a time that was better than what they had. There was a time, see, under David, there was a unified kingdom, united. And under Solomon, but only after Solomon, the thing broke apart, see. And so they went into really difficult problems, much more severe than what they had ever done before, after the division of the kingdom. And so it got so bad that one part of the kingdom had already been pushed off their land, and other people had to come in and take it over. And so you can read about the idea then of coming together again. I read it before from Ezekiel, and I'll just read a little portion from there as well again. In Ezekiel chapter 37, and beginning in verse 15, it says this, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, As for you, son of man, Take a stick for yourself and write on it. For Judah and for the children of Israel, 
his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. And then it goes on that way through the tribes there. And then down to verse number 21, it says, Then say to them, Thus says to the Lord God, I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, into their own land. So the people who dispossessed them didn't gain ownership of the land. It remained. The ownership didn't change hands. The only thing that changed hands was who was occupying the land. And he said, I will make them one nation in the land. Has he done that? God said, I will. So we can depend on it. He will do it. He's going to. One land. On the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them. And they shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. These are powerful terms. I mean, these are bold proclamations to say it's going to be this way. Clearly, this could only be reasonable from the one who is God himself to make these kinds of statements. Because for any limited person, any finite being, to say these kinds of things would be out of place. They could say them, but there would be no reason to trust in them in what they say because they, they can speak any words they want. But to be able to speak the words and also know that it's going to be. And that's what God said. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. That's God speaking. So that's good news. He, in that first part of that chapter, was going to restore the excellence of Jacob. Now, back again in chapter 2 here in Nahum. So we looked at the first verse there where it says, fortify your power mightily at the end of verse 1. And then in verse 3 it says, the shields of his mighty men are made red. Now, that's quite interesting. Is this the first time we are looking here and saying something about something being made red. Why would it be made red? And the word where it's rendered is from where it, the idea or the indication is that dyed red. <laughs> but one of the notes I read is said, says that it was it's like a psychological warfare. The reason for the red. red dyed red like the color of blood to be used in their approach to the enemy that they're fighting. The valiant men are in scarlet. Scarlet, bright red. So there was a form and a fashion to how they went about doing the battles that they got themselves engaged in. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, 
and the spears are brandished. Now that's really quite, uh, quite dramatic language there as to what's going on here. But this is saying how it's going to be from their perspective when the Assyrians met with their fate that was coming. These kinds of expressions, spears brandished, chariots raging in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. I've never been in a battle, a military battle. I've never been in the military. Uh, this young man's in ROTC. I was one time. <laughs> but that's the closest I've got. And it, so all I know is what I've read or heard or something about that. But I can imagine that for the soldiers who are involved in this kind of thing, it must be a terrifying experience. And that was coming to them. And then in verse number five, he says here, he, uh, he remembers his, his nobles. Uh, or, and I said, remembers his nobles, and I had trouble with that, and I said, Really, what, what are they getting at there? And there are some other translations that are translated from different manuscripts that, which render that a bit differently. So the ESB puts it this way. He said, he gives orders to his officers. They stumble as they advance. They race to his wall. Their protective shield is set in its place. I think that helps to give a better sense than for just reading, he remembers his nobles. But they stumble in their walk, and back on in verse number five again, in the New King James Version, which I'm using here. They make haste to their walls, and their defense is prepared. Now the next part here is really quite interesting because there is some historical information which correlates with what we see in the next portion here. So that when the Assyrians were defeated, finally, there were certain things that took place. Now look at what we see in this next verse here. Verse number six. The gates of the rivers are open and the palace is dissolved. Then it says, it is decreed she shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up. And a maidservants shall lead her as with the voice of doves beating their breasts. Now, one of the interesting things about uh, Nineveh is that there were two rivers that ran through the city. And they had a system of dams and sluice gates to control the rivers and the flow of the water. And so they could ma manage to a certain extent. Sometimes it was flooding, and the flooding would damage the buildings and all that sort of thing. 
Now, Sennacherib, we've read about in some of our other sections we looked at. And what I have seen in some of the things I've read is that Sennacherib changed the course of one of these rivers inside the city. And outside the city, he dammed up the other river. Now, I have the names of those rivers written here on my page, but I didn't venture to try to pronounce them. <laughs> but I thought you can get the point without me calling out the names incorrectly. But there were two rivers. And so they had a series of uh, ways of, of controlling and handling the water. But now here's a historical reference here. And note it, not all people who engage in this kind of study would agree as to what the conclusions are here. But there was one called Diodorus of Sicily. He was an ancient Greek historian and one named Xenophon of Athens, who was a military leader, a philosopher, and a historian. And then they suggested or said that just before Nineveh fell, there were very high uh, rainfall, rainfalls that deluged the area. This is what these historians are saying. So we're not relying on that as, as our primary source of information. It is a secondary source. The Bible itself is our primary source, and so we believe it. But it's helpful to see that in historical documents, sometimes we see, and in archaeological studies and things like that, sometimes we see things which correlate well with what the Bible text says. And I think it's good and useful for us to look at those sources. But they said the, I'm going to pronounce it this time, the Koza River swelled and the reservoir was breached. The waters rushed through overland and overloaded the canal system, breaking a hole in the wall of the city. And this says the hole of the wall that was broken to the city was about 2.3 miles. Now that sounds enormous, but this is what the historical people said. And that when the waters receded, the Babylonians stormed into Nineveh and conquered the city. Now, so what I'm saying is this, is that this prophet is speaking as if the thing has already occurred. And he says this is the way it's going to be. And now we have some historians, ancient historians, who in their documents include information that correlates well with what the prophet has said. Now, what that would do is it, it would give them credit for having their history line up with the scripture as opposed to giving scripture credit for lining up with their history. Get that point. But that is as it is. And so here, when we see this, though, about this captivity and how it was going to be, and here, this last, in verse number seven, the last sentence there, well, the last part of it, it talks about her maid servants shall lead her as with the voice of doves beating on their breasts. I found that to be an interesting idea there. And 
because that's, you know, if you're, if you're enslaved and the liberator comes, you would expect a rejoicing. But this picture doesn't seem to paint that. They lost Ashelon, and it seems that there's a lament here. And so the idea is that for some of those who have been brought in from other places, life was pretty good for them, perhaps better than what they had before. And so this would be explain how this would be the lamenting of somebody who's at the lowest end of the stratum. Now, the next part of this, it says, though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water. Like a pool of water. And so when I read that, I say, hmm, what is that, what's that all about? But one of the things we do know is, and this is from history again, is that Nineveh was famous for its artificial pools. They, 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 had, they had a fame that went beyond their borders about that. And so they had many uh, of these pools service the gardens, the royal gardens. We said something, I think, in one of the other messages, and I think Brother Dwayne talked about that one time too. Some of those magnificent uh, things that they had in terms of their royal gardens and these pools were part of that. So it's helping to depict what that area was, what it was like uh, in its heyday and what it was like. And so the more magnificent it was, the most magnificent being brought to the most devastation. Wow, that is quite a fall. But that is what the text is telling us. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold. There is an end of, there is no end of treasure, a wealth of every desirable prize. Now the idea to understand I get here is that they're talking about you know, these who, ones who are the invaders being able to say these kind of things. You know, there's just take, 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 there's no spoil. The people are running away. And so everything there is there. So it says here in verse 10, she is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts and the knees shake. Much pain is in every side. And all their faces are drained of color. Can you imagine a mighty, powerful military going on a marching mission to meet up with an enemy? And then this has becomes an, uh, an, uh, a, uh, an, a true statement of what the state was empty, desolate, and waste, hearts melting, knees shaking, pain on every side, faces drained of color. What of all those things depict defeat? And so when Nineveh 
the Assyrians decided to take on God, as it were, God says, it's a losing battle for you. Now I'm going to go to verse 13 in chapter 2 here in Nahum, and we're going to close after this. But in verse 13 it says, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. So God says, I am against you. Can you think of more frightening words than that? You know, the Lord said, Many will say unto me in that day, Have we not done all these things? Cast out demons, heal the sick, done all these mighty deeds in your name. Haven't we done these things? Now, here's the thing that's weird about that is that the way that's depicted. It's like one of us standing up in, in God's court and he's there on the bench and we're going to present to him our defense. Wow, that, that's a strange thing. If he's calling us up short and we're going to say, Lord, haven't I done this and haven't I done that and haven't I done the other thing? And if you're just God, then you have to do this. That's the way that thing is, that pro- uh, approach. But the answer, as we read in the, uh, in the Gospels, was, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Now that to us seems like a strange thing. But I think it's helpful for us to think about that. Because we know that each one of us, that we're going to get an opportunity to be face-to-face with our Creator. A lot of people don't believe it. A lot of people act as if it's never going to be. But for every person, it's going to happen. And for some, it's going to be the greatest thing that could ever happen. And for others it will be the worst thing that could ever happen. It will be one or the other. And so we can judge by outward appearances, but I'll tell you what, those outward appearances mean nothing to God. We look on those, but we can't look on the heart. God looks on the heart while he also sees the outward appearance. He knows if it's a white sepulcher. We may not know that, but he does. And so the Assyrians then were in a bad spot because they were standing in opposition to God. And so the moral for us is to not find ourselves standing in opposition to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful 
because you have given to us the privilege to have your word so that we might know and understand what we should. And so we ask for you, by your spirit, to help us so that we can cultivate a right relationship with the Holy God and all that flows out of it. We pray in the name of Christ the Savior with thanksgiving. Amen.